Welcome to episode 71 of Contested Catch. We're here to talk about the divisional round. Obviously, we've moved on in the playoffs, Jeff. We are going to look back at the wild card weekend uh, and talk about that a little bit in the same context as these divisional round matchups. Um, but first and foremost, of course, how are you doing, my friend? How was your week since the Bills' victory? I uh, love a good victory week, Will, and also have some exciting news. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. I'll be doing a little work this year with a small NFL sports agency helping uh, with their recruiting the 2022 prospects. That is awesome stuff, man. You know, we are going to talk a lot about this draft class, but in general, we talk a lot about the draft. And I think that's something you and I both love. And I think you're very qualified to do something like that. So that's awesome. Yeah, it'll be a little different, you know, half needing to actually be out in front. Um and not just, you know, waiting until draft season, but being right. like a year early. But yeah, it'll be pretty fun. You know, hopefully uh, pay some dividends down the road. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's I think it's difficult to be out in front like that because you're not always watching players uh, get consistent minutes. You don't get the entire body of work. You don't get the combine numbers. Uh, you don't get, you know, I guess all the fanfare and and hearsay that comes with NFL draft season. So it's not easy to be a leader in that, but I I know you can do it. Thank you. Yeah, got to start hitting on the sophomores before they break out as juniors. It'll be a yep. I love it. Well, that'll be a that'll be a nice compliment to our NFL draft coverage um, as we you know progress through the NFL season here. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay, so um, how fun was that Super Wild Card weekend, Jeff? I mean, NFL on Saturdays and Sundays again. Uh, it was awesome. Six games over spread over those two days. Did you tune into the Nickelodeon broadcast? Oh, of course. <laughs> got you got slime. I mean, was it was there any was there any other way to watch that game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I like the idea. I per, I you know saw highlights, but I wasn't like watching the game through that. Uh, the ESPN megacast, which we'll talk about in a sec, is much more up my alley, of course. I think for most adults, but I just think it's cool that. A, Nickelodeon got the rights to broadcast the game. And I think it was actually um, KFC on Barstool was saying that, you know, hopefully every, I think this was him, every, or the NFL games will get broadcast on different channels um, in their, you know, to appeal to their own audience, which I think would be really cool. I think that the way the NFL works right now with blackouts and overlaps and like the one o'clock slots and shit like that, and you can only watch a couple games if you don't have Sunday ticket. It just sucks um, that it's not more of like a free market there, I guess. So, you know, my takeaway from the Nickelodeon broadcast was bring on the slime, keep it going, and hopefully we get some more of it. Yeah, no, I think it, and it's a great idea or way to bring in the younger audience too. Um, you know, think like, let's just say, you know, you're having, you know, you're an adult, wherever you're having some people over in a post-COVID era for a little football watch party, you know, regular season playoff, whatever. And, you know, you have a handful of smaller kids who kind of are interested, but don't really care that much. You know, you can stick them in the basement or in the other room with the Nick broadcast on with the more, you know, child version while the adults are able to watch it with, you know, Tony Romo and Jim Nance or whomever. And I mean, I think it's a really good alternative broadcast and way to try and draw the younger crowd. And you just can't have the Chicago Bears. <laughs> True. They're not very fun. Uh, the slime covered up a lot of their their uh, deficiencies in that one. But um, 
Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I didn't hear what the broadcast sounded like in the Nickelodeon version. I mo- more so saw visuals. Um, I mean, it was it was a lot more lighthearted and, you know, explain, explaining the basics. But was there play? Um, by it play? was good. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, they had like Nate Burleson. Um, oh, yeah, he's a great the main guy. Yeah. And then uh, I think it was Ian Eagle's son. Yep. And then Baby Eagle. Uh, yeah. And then a girl who works for Nick. I forget her name. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and they did a really good job. I mean, Nate Burleson was fantastic, too. Yeah. I think if they can incorporate a semblance of play by play, even if it's lighthearted, even if it's not getting so deep into the X's and O's, I honestly think, Jeff, the the situation you described could actually be solved by just watching the Nickelodeon broadcast. Now, you know, NFL savvy adults would probably have to grit their teeth a little bit, not hearing the typical broadcast and, and commentary. But if it also, you know, gets your kids involved and, you know, rather than watching in two separate uh, scenarios where the kids might not actually even be interested in the game, maybe they're all interested in watching. I don't know. It's uh, it's fun when you get the whole family involved, I guess. So, well, you know, on the other hand, Jeff, we see the Nickelodeon broadcast, but we also had the ESPN Megacast, which I personally think you can make a case that Nickelodeon's broadcast is more so, you know, on the line of uh, the future of how we're going to watch NFL in terms of context related to a channel specific audience. But I think the Megacast, which had play by play analysis, you know, rewind X's and O's during the game. In addition to watching the live broadcast at a different part of the screen, uh, obviously a lot of NFL vets and, and presence there. Um, and I think that it was just an awesome way to watch the game. If you are interested in going deeper than the general play-by-play color commentary that you get on a normal broadcast, what what were your takeaways on ESPN Megacast? I like that as well. Um, and I, I think we'll see more of that as gambling is legalized more throughout the country and in a lot more I guess it's pretty accepted already, but like a lot more mainstream um, is, you know, doing the breakaways to other different, you know, professionals and saying like, Hey, we like this and that. I thought it was, uh, it was pretty cool and having a lot more of the analytics focus on it. I'm almost concerned though, if there could actually be like a second order effect where if you have a lot more of the, like the analytics broadcasts like that, could it then go and dumb down the, other like if let's just say NBA, you whatever ESPN games you have for every, all of them you have this type of mega cast and then you have your traditional um, broadcast. People like us are going to be tuning a lot more into the mega casts. Could that cause the mainstream broadcast though to get like dumber? Establish the run. Why are they going for it here? And I don't know. Well, no, I, I do like the idea and I hope we do see more of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an interesting uh, problem that it could cause. I, you know, obviously I don't have an answer. I don't, you know, no one does, but it's interesting. Um, one thing I was going to point out was that I wish there was a real analytics presence on in the megacast in the room with them because we we talk about it all the time. It's all over Twitter, but um, these NFL guys, you know, in quotes, NFL guys who are very well equipped to talk about football try to also incorporate analytical arguments. And it's not that they don't have the capacity to, but I don't think there's a really a, a belief in them. And so therefore it's kind of like playing devil's advocate. Um, I think Mina Kimes did a really Oh, she's Mina stellar. Really she's she's not a yeah. Yeah. She's an she's an outlier from the from the group that I was just talking and about. This was this was the um the Ravens Titans game, right? The Mega Cast. Yes. 
Yeah. And, and they were just like flabbergasted when the Titians decided to punt the ball. Yep. They were like, like, wait, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> and then on the apparently on the normal broadcast, they just rolled with it like, and yep, got to win the field position battle. Yeah. So like I, I which I didn't see or watch, I just like heard about that on Twitter. So like, yeah, I mean, I, it was pretty funny how the complete dichotomy of like, wait, what you're punting here versus, y'all smart, got to got to keep field position. Right, and you know, one thing I noticed when you have Booger and Brewski and obviously Keyshawn John, you know, the guys that they had on there, Rex Ryan was there. Obviously, they had they had a bunch of different voices. There is some jostling for, I guess, like if you're right on this. You know, if they should have done that, like I noticed Keyshawn Johnson, I can't remember the exact play. Uh, it was it was going for it on fourth or, or, or something to that effect or or if they should have punted it. You know what it was? They were going for it on fourth and two. They picked it up, but there was a picking penalty. They had the pick. Uh, so it sent them back 10 yards. Keyshawn said they should have should have kicked the field goal from 42. It went back to 52. He said he's going to miss it. He made it. It's Justin Tucker. We're not surprised. But still, the point is. It was just interesting to hear like their thought process and kind of watch the game from their eyes because you're you know you're seeing the game live as they are and then they're breaking things down. Um, one other thing I'll say about this is that it made me chuckle. But Teddy Bruschi, what, what I was talking about about you know kind of playing devil's advocate with analytical arguments, not even necessarily de- devil's advocate, but just presenting them. He was like, what would the mathematicians say? You know, analytics is the big buzzword in the NFL these days. Like making it sound like it's this it's this. Uh, new craze or something that's not going to last it's not a part of the game uh as but you and i know and our, i assume our listeners know as well because we talk about it all the time that analytics is growing fast not fast enough but growing fast in terms of how much it is being incorporated into game plans into decision making into draft uh decision making and you know so i just wish that there was a little bit uh more balanced approach there not necessarily it's like you know, five nerds in the room, you know, so to speak, as people like to call them. Um, but more so that there is kind of this conversation and not just, well, we think this, but, you know, they would say to punt it or they would say to kick the field goal here or go for it. Um, so that's my only takeaway from that. From that, Otherwise, I absolutely love the mega cast. I thought it was a great way to watch the game. So any other thoughts on that? Um, stuff, Jeff? Well, Dan, Dan Orlovsky was sort of that former player, but um, in touch with the numbers, I thought like presence, I guess. And actually, actually, as much as we rip on him on Twitter, he was really good during the mega cast. Dude, I got to say Orlovsky gets a, a bad rap on Twitter because I think, may, you know, I think some of the argument is because that- he defends Carson Wentz too much. <laughs> he he's opinionated. And some people I, I've seen make the case that he's intentionally opinionated trying to get, you know, that reaction kind of thing and grow his own following, you know, his clout. I don't necessarily have an, an opinion on that. I do think it is awesome when a former NFL player who was not brought up in the age of analytics can adopt new ways of thinking and incorporate that in his arguments and what he thinks a team should do or how he analyzes a game. I think Mina Kimes is an amazing voice for this Absolutely. kind of thing. Uh, and so the more we see of that, the better. I, but uh, on that note too, like that was kind of what convinced me McDermott was going to be a good coach mm. is his, his first season in Buffalo was the 2017 season. I think, right. Not that it really matters. I think it was 2017 and whatever his first season was very conservative, like never, almost always it was like fourth down. We're punting it. 
Um, and there was the egregious punk call in the snow game, snowball, which we ended up winning the game. But, you know, I think if we you know, got into tie because of that punt, we don't make the playoffs. So they just ultra conservative. And then the next year completely flipped it around to be going one of the most aggressive on fourth down. And we've just kept that for the last three seasons. And like that reversal in recognizing that as a personal weakness of his was what really like convinced me like, Hey, I think he could be the one. Yeah, no, he's been, he's been stellar with that. And anytime, I mean, Jim Harbaugh yeah. is an, and another it, right, example. And like, yeah. It's the changing growth mindset. Yep. Another good one too. It's it just, it's just um, the willingness to incorporate another part of the argument that others want to completely tune out and, and dismiss altogether. And you know, that's just yeah. or, bad reasoning. <laughs> it's never a good idea. Um, <laughs> Okay, good stuff. I thought I think that's a great conversation about, you know, broadcast, analytics, that sort of thing. So we're going to get to the games now. We're going to talk about each wild card game. We're going to talk about each divisional matchup as well as the upcoming DFS slate towards the end. And obviously some betting interspersed in there as well. I've got to say this at the top, Jeff. I think three of the four divisional matchups will be super interesting at least. So I'm very excited for the football we have coming up. Um, we'll start with the hometown team, our Buffalo Bills. At home versus the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, first... We'll talk about the Ravens, and they eked out a wild card dub against the Titans in a low-scoring 20-13 game. We already talked about that. That was the ESPN megacast. Um, and the Ravens continue to express themselves via the run game. That's how they do it. They rushed for 263 yards, led, of course, by the wheels of Lamar Jackson. He had uh, one of the plays of the year, you could you could argue, with that run. Uh, that was just putting the team completely on his back. Dan Orlovsky, as we already mentioned, did a great job of breaking down that play. It made made you appreciate it even more and how he is just a complete wrecker of the X's and O's. Um, he's looking as dangerous as, as ever on the ground. The Ravens' pass game was nothing to write home about, but they didn't necessarily need to pass. I think that was more, I think the volume stats that we see there or really lack thereof is more an indication of, of how content they were to run and how effective they were at doing that uh it is still a concern if the ravens fall behind if they have the pass game that they did in 2019 that can keep up with teams or catch up um but jeff also the ravens defense absolutely shut down the titans offense with the exception of maybe aj brown you could argue got loose for 683 and a touchdown um and i think other than that i'm i mean it was just a complete dominant performance the titans offense we know is explosive and has the ability to score so it speaks to the potency of the Ravens defense that they were able to hold them just 13 points, shut down the 2,000-yard rusher, Derrick Henry, shut down De uh, Ryan Tannehill. It was just utter dominance um, on that side of the ball. So, uh, Jeff, takeaways from the Ravens-Titans game. Are you thinking the Ravens are more in line with the 2019 version that we saw, or is this just a better version of the 2020? I would say it's a better version of the 2020. I mean, they, they were getting hot and like back to their 2019 selves towards the end of the year. There just still seems to be like that missing component. And I, I mean, I don't know if it's like the absence of Marshall Yanda on the inside, just kind of capping the explosiveness of their run game or, or like maybe the, the, the tight end sets aren't working as well with the absence of Hayden Hurst because of how they've had to reshuffle things. Like it just seems to be something that's just missing from this team, but like they're still like so explosive with, I mean that Lamar run, like I said, is incredible. I think 
it was like what 20.3 miles per hour was his top speed was it really i saw you tweet that we need to see the top speed i didn't see they, what it was yeah i think it was i think it was 20.3 oh but, my god that's crazy is that the um, fastest of the year it is. usually the fastest is no. around like 22 and a half i thought no i i mean for me it's like his top speeds like they're still really good but it's his acceleration really yeah is, and quickness when you're running full speed yeah yeah the agile edge on this um let me see. He reached 20.64. Um, no, no, not that wasn't even the touchdown. He reached 20.5 on the touchdown and then 20.64 on a different rush. And 20.19 on another rush. So three plays in that game. He eclipsed 20 miles per hour. Yeah, that that's insane. He's literally a horse. Um, I think uh I if I remember correctly, Matt Breida has been the fastest top end speed, like to, uh 2019, 2018, if I remember correctly, around 22 and a half. Raheem Mostert, 23.09 this season. Also, he has the second top speed of 22.73. Jonathan Taylor, number four, 22.05 miles per hour. And he's a thick boy. <laughs> he is thick. Um, so, yeah, so like that, I mean, no, the Mars is ridiculous. And like that, is, the acceleration is almost if not more important than, than like the top end speed too. totally because you know when you're when you're a running back we're not saying that he is when you're a running back the top end speed can allow you to he get is. through the hole and then no one can touch you that's literally raheem mosert's game right the running game is so good that once he actually gets a crease he has the explosiveness to run in a straight line faster than any of the players on defense can um with lamar it's so much more complex than that you can't just shut him down and beat him to the edge he is going to dismantle you, rob you of your ankles, uh, put a move on you, and then not take a hit. It's it's really as Matt Milano learned very well. Yes, last year. absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, we talked about this as well. But when you have the quarterback running the football, you go eleven on eleven, removing the defense's advantage in terms of personnel there. So you know, it's something the Bills fans know very well with Josh Allen's potency as a rusher. But no one is in the class of Lamar. Uh, save maybe Kyler at this point. Um, he's been really effective, but still I think that Lamar is the pinnacle of the rushing quarterback, the dual threat quarterback. So um, let's shift over to the Bills now, Jeff. We're going to you know talk about how they match up. But first, the Bills also eked out a win versus Indianapolis. First of all, I want to talk about the not overturned Zach Paschal fumble at the end of the game. Um, if anyone missed it, Basically, what happened was Indianapolis is down by a field goal, uh, not enough time for anything other than one last drive, and they are moving okay down the field. I think they were around the four, um, I think they were around the uh, forty, their own forty, and then they threw about a fifteen-yard pass to Zach Pascal. He slides to catch it, so therefore he's on the ground. He gets up, and as he gets up, two Bills players, Jordan Poyer being one of them, contact him. Jordan Poyer gets his arm in uh, on the football, rips it out. Bills make a clear recovery. Ruling on the field was that he was down by contact. The, uh, the play was not sent to review initially. Um, so as the Colts are rushing up to the line to continue their drive, Sean McDermott, Sean McDermott calls a timeout, which was necessary to trigger the review. He eventually wasn't charged the timeout because they called it a booth review, but you know, I'm not necessarily sure that that was going to happen anyway. Um, so what happens next, Jeff, is it is abundantly clear to me, at least. And I think to most people that I discuss with, albeit a little bit of bias, because most people I know are from 
Western New York. Um, but, and you know, a lot of people on Twitter as well felt the same way. Um, there was a couple, there were about two frames that showed Zach Pascal's knee off the ground and Jordan Poyer's hand not touching him. There was no contact while he was off the ground and therefore he didn't give himself up. So there was no down by contact. Then the ball was ripped out, then a clear recovery. They did not overturn this and it gave the Colts life once again. Ultimately, they did not do enough to win the game. Obviously, Bills won 27-24. But, you know, I, you know, my takeaway from this, Jeff, is that it's just inexcusable to happen in a playoff game with a three, you know, three-point lead and to blow this call that bad. And you know, am I wrong in thinking this? No, it's the competency of the US government. Like same same level right there. Sorry for getting political. It's <laughs> but it's it's just like egregious. Um, especially when you have millions of eyeballs on the game clearly able to see what you're seeing. Um yeah, it's so bad. And I, I think this was this is like the XFL. Remember when they had um instant replays and they would actually show the live feed of the ref and the um like league official going through it and like talking through what they're seeing. And yeah, we should have the same thing for the NFL. Um not that it's like, you know. Uh, not that it would change them getting it right or wrong, but the very least we could like, I guess, roast them even more. Or maybe if there actually was something there, we hear them or he's hear their logic. But I don't know. It's just egregious. Um, but yeah, and luckily it did not come back to hurt the Bills, and we still walked out with a W. Yeah, I mean, I you know I I was legitimately my heart was pounding. I was holding my breath. During that final Hail Mary, I wasn't that worried that it was Philip Rivers throwing the ball. He missed the end zone by about he 10 yards. He couldn't even get close to the end <laughs> Yeah, and you know, the. Yeah, that, that sh- they should have had Jacoby Brisket throwing that. Yeah, he, uh, Brissett has done that earlier this year, I believe, that they bring him in to have the long throw. Uh, but still, I mean, the Bills lost to the Cardinals in a very similar fashion in the sense of a, a Hail Murray at the end of the game. Uh, so, you know, it, it wasn't, um, you know, wrapped up by any means. Anyway, my takeaway from that was just it was egregious, cannot happen. It just can't happen. Uh, And it's got to stop. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of eyes watching these games, you know, and especially when you're talking about the Bills, a team with their first playoff victory in 25 years. If that had been robbed from Bills fans and this Bills team, I don't even really know what would have happened. Uh, I think it could have been worse than the Saints' uh, no pass interference call uh, from a couple years back, if you remember that, when all of a sudden the next year the league was reviewing PI that didn't stick, but you know, there were suits. Uh, I think if, if the saints were in a uh, franchise situation, like the bills in terms of lack of historical success in the last two decades, it would have been even worse. So that's my take there. But anyway, Jeff, moving to the, to the game here, I think Indianapolis played this game much closer than people thought they would. I, for one did not think the bills would struggle like they did on defense. The defense had played much better as of late, and I wasn't particularly worried about this Indianapolis offense, but they do have a good offensive mastermind. Phillip Rivers is still capable of doing some things on the football field, like throw to open receivers, uh, you know, about 10, 15 yards downfield. And he made some really, really nice throws. I'll give him credit for that. Um, This defense struggled to contain a group of skill position players that isn't all that scary. I mean, the good news is that the guy I was probably most worried about Jonathan Taylor didn't rip us up. He came off week 17 with 200 
250 rushing yards or something. Um, Naheem Hines did rip us up in terms of on a per touch basis. He matched Taylor's production on 23 fewer touches, uh, thanks to some long runs in the second half. But I think the number one takeaway on the Bills defense uh, is the success of Indianapolis's tight ends. Uh, it has to be a flashing beacon ahead of the matchup with Mark Andrews. We know how good Mark Andrews is. We know he, he's Lamar's favorite target. And the fact that Jack Doyle, nowhere near the caliber of Mark Andrews, Mo Cox, Mo Cox, more problems, uh, and Trey Burton, they were all successful on their opportunities and really, really were the reason that Indianapolis was in this game. So uh, do you think that this is a product of Indianapolis having a good game plan or maybe these guys are more talented than I'm giving them credit for? Or was it a deficiency on Buffalo that needs to get addressed by Saturday? Um, I think it's just a little combination of all that. Um, you know, going in, we said it was kind of not an ideal matchup in terms of like where their strengths are versus our strengths. But also really where they did they did their damage on third downs which like on on first and second down um the Colts only had a 30% success rate and were only averaging 0.15 EPA per play which is not good and like below their average it's just third downs and i guess a couple the handful well fourth downs we usually came up big but like third downs we just weren't hitting for whatever reason and I mean, that tends to regress more towards the mean of first and second down production. So I'm not overly worried. Um, like, yeah, I, I saw some of that. I'm like, damn it, we got to get that stop. How do we let that happen? But like, you know, I think you said the Colts had a really good game plan. Matchup wise, it wasn't ideal for us. But also we still, you know, 24 points is against the playoff team is pretty good. So like, yeah, we, we need to dial it in a little bit tighter against the Ravens, no doubt. But I'm not, like, overly concerned, like, oh, my gosh, the defense is going to let us down. You know, we couldn't stop the Colts because we really did a pretty good job on, like I said, on early downs. It's just, you know, first and or third downs for whatever reason is where we had trouble. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I've, I'll say this, um, skipping briefly ahead to the DFS portion of this. I think if there is, if you're going to extrapolate something from the Bills' struggles against not only the tight ends but also the huge Michael Pittman wide receiver with with tight end size, uh, if there's someone besides Mark Andrews that you could try to capitalize with uh, on that deficiency by Bills the Bills' defense, it might be Miles Boykin, who is um, not heavily used by the Ravens, but he's a size speed freak, six four two twenty, runs as fast as the wind. Um, doesn't get used a lot, like I said, but he is capable of scoring a touchdown, is capable of a big play. So maybe the Ravens use him more than they have uh, in, in order to ex- uh, exploit that. But and you know, going back to the Bills here, Jeff, I don't think anything was really all that surprising or any big takeaway on the Bills' offensive side of the ball. I will say this. How about toe tap Gabe, da- Gabe Davis? Uh, four for 85 stellar. I mean, like all like incredible, all pro sideline grabs with the toe drag. Um, I, you know, I just got to say he's really developing into more than just a promising rookie at this point, Jeff, he's looking like he's four months younger than Devonta Smith. Yeah. No, you, you tweeted that as well. It's, uh, and I've retweeted it a couple of times. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's very poignant to point out because he's not, you know, old, he's uh, really, really good. He's looking like a future stud catching the ball from Josh Allen. Him and Stephon Diggs going forward. Yes, we still have Cole Beasley, but he's entering the twilight of his career probably, uh, although his game isn't really predicated on 
you know, top end athleticism. Uh, John Brown, you know, has struggled historically throughout his career to stay healthy and on the field. So I just think it's so encouraging for the Bills future to have a young star in the making wide receiver in Gabe Davis. Um, and last thing I'll say about the Bills, Jeff, we don't talk about special teams much on this on this show. But I have just been so impressed all year by Buffalo in this regard. They have been stellar. The rookie Tyler Bass had an iconic flex. I'm sure our audience has seen it on Twitter or on ESPN or something. Uh, After drilling a 54-yarder, followed by amazing uh, casual golf claps from the Bills offense, notably the wide receivers on the bench. Uh, it was just, uh, you know, an amazing video snippet. It's usually the other way around, right? You think the the quiet, composed players are more of the, the punters, kickers. But anyway, Tyler Bass continues to impress as a rookie. Andre Roberts continues to matter as a returner. We talked about this offline a lot, Jeff, but I, you know, really believe Andre Roberts matters. Like he made a couple bad decisions this game. He did. But the other thing is when you have a player that is as explosive as him, like would you ever fault Cordero Patterson for running a ball out of the end zone on a kickoff? Um, I mean, on that one where you're catching it like in seven the yards deep in the corner. Yeah, I would. Uh and I mean, I think also too, like, is we'd all at that point, we'd already been starting every drive with bad field position. And then that just was another one. Like you could have just, I get, he was trying to make something happen. Like we don't need to start another drive at our own time. Just take the knee 25, let the offense go to work. It's good. But it's a good point. Yeah. I, he will. I do still think he can be an X factor, uh, on the, during the playoffs though. I'm, I'm of the mindset that when you have an, a returner who is capable of breaking it into the opponent's half of the field, maybe even take it to the house, uh, you are okay with some of these duds because their aggressiveness is what allows them to make those plays that change the game. So I, you know, it's not really a prediction, but more so something that people probably aren't hearing in terms of other analysis of the playoffs. And I think Andre Roberts is very, very capable of taking one back to the house uh, in the subsequent Bills games, uh, hopefully plural. Um, one last thing, Corey Bajorquez, thankfully underused punter for the Bills, deserves a shout out. He's just been great all year. I think he's leading the league. Uh, he doesn't qualify because he doesn't have enough punts. So that's why I said thankfully underused, but he's been amazing in terms of punting as well. So all around the special teams unit has been great. Um, but Jeff, let's get to this game now. Uh, we've got a team that's the best in football at running it in Baltimore, strong defense, versus a team that has struggled greatly at times this season against the run. Like, as you talked about last week, they have had uh, better in terms of EPA per play against the run uh, in more success in the last couple of weeks. But, um, you know, and obviously still pr- proved susceptible to big plays in the wildcard round. Uh, but with an explosive offense that is as good uh, or at least of the same caliber as Kansas City, I believe. So who are we taking, Baltimore or Buffalo? Gotta keep rolling with Buffalo. I'm I'm not betting it against us like for the rest of the season. I love it. I love it. Okay, maybe maybe as a reverse jinx for the Super Bowl, <laughs> but not actually. <laughs> Just like I did against the Rams. Yeah. I'll take one for the team. Okay. Um, yeah, the Bills should be favored at home. They are their two and a half point favorites. I like the Buffalo spread in this one, not just the money line, but the yeah. spread. Um, I think the wild card was just the wake up call of this team. And honestly, the fan base, we talked about this last week, Jeff, we're a little overconfident going into the wild card. So it was the wake up call that we all needed. 
uh, for after some understandable overconfidence crept in following, you know, just this torrid end to the regular season. So I was so overconfident. Yeah. I was like, you know, what, what was what I said last <laughs> still, week? I mean, still we am. We want Bama. Still am. <laughs> we want Bama. Um, so my score prediction for this one is 27-24 Buffalo, just like last week. I do think that the Ravens keep this one close. I don't think it is going to be a track meet per se, but I do think there's enough scoring um, to probably get to around 50 points. Um, so anyway, any other thoughts on this, what should be a great matchup between Buffalo and Baltimore? Um, I just want to touch on the running matchup quickly is that you know, we've talked about how when we've committed to stopping the run, we've been able to usually do a pretty good job. Like the Chargers game, uh, the San Francisco game, we completely shut it down. So we've seen, uh, like, or even like towards the end of like the Chiefs game, of getting gouged on the ground. Like, okay, when you stop them, we shut them down. And even in last year's game against Baltimore, you know, we really were a, like running defense. We weren't that good last year either. Well, against the Ravens, we mostly kept it in check too. So I, like, I really just think the reason that we are weak against the rush is because we prioritize stopping the pass, and we're okay seeding the extra production on the ground because it's still less than what we're giving up in the air. And basically, I think we're going to have another really good game plan. Um, it'll be a fantastic chess match between two great young quarterbacks, and hopefully we'll have many more of these to come. Yeah. And the Bills win most of them. Love it. I think that's a great point. Uh, and, you know, to, to add on to that real quick, I think that might be exemplified by Naheem Hines rushing for 70-plus yards on just a couple of touches um, compared to Jonathan Taylor rushing for 70 yards on, like, 23 so I think the takeaway there is when Taylor's in the game, it's much more likely to be a run, um, and especially early on in the game. And so maybe the Bills were playing the pass, therefore allowing some of these big runs to Hines. But when they wanted to shut down Taylor, they did. So good stuff there. Let's move on now to the other game in the AFC picture. That is obviously Kansas City, who we've already been mentioning a little bit, versus Cleveland. Now, Jeff, you could make a case that Indy's performance against a really hot Buffalo Bills team may be uh, a, a pretty strong case for the Seahawks' embarrassment against the Rams. Maybe Taylor Heineke's emergency performance for Washington and how good he looked. Uh, but I think Cleveland's complete and utter dominance against the Steelers was by far the most shocking event of the wildcard round. I don't think that anything really even comes all that close. Do you agree? Um... Yeah, or at least like the first quarter. Um, because I mean they almost blew it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like which is also the most Browns thing and not surprising at all either. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean that that first quarter was just like an incredible implosion by the Steelers, slash like dominance by the Browns. But I mean then in the second half, like their secondary really got his ass kicked. Yeah, no, it's true. But I also think that Ben throwing it six, 68 times. Uh, four touchdowns, 500 yards. I think those are volume stats in catch-up mode a la Phillip Rivers. I don't think that that is as much on the defense as it might appear. Yeah, no, um, some somewhat. I mean, the efficiency was still... Um, EPA per drop back was kind of like in line with this Steelers' season average, slightly, slightly above their season average. So... Uh, like just on the whole, I, I don't have that broken down based on like garbage time or anything, but, um, yeah, I, I do think though it's going, I mean, it, it has been the, a weak point for the Browns this year as well. And I mean, I 
think it's a tough matchup for them on the back end against Kansas City, especially with um, Tyreek and Kelsey. But they do have the advantage in the trenches, and like it's not even like a little bit; it's like a pretty big gap. So the path for victory for the Browns is you know just dominating the line of scrimmage. Um, the offensive line has been the Chiefs' weak point this year. They have not been able to run the ball effectively. Mahomes has been scrambling quite a bit more, I think, than usual. Um, so I think the Chiefs might be looking to get the ball out a little bit quicker, perhaps, and nullify that pass rush, get Tyreek just kind of going in space and let him work instead of uh, getting him the ball 20 yards downfield. And, um, you know, but – I mean, still, you you can't bet against Mahomes. Like, there's there is definitely a path for victory for the Browns, but I just don't see it happening, especially with Andy Reid and the Chiefs coming back off a bye. They really just kind of remind me of Golden State Warriors. Like, even though they were, you know, they go through their lulls when they coach, just because they're they are so good that they don't they almost get bored. Like that was just the impression I got at the end of the season. But I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe they do are just. I, I, they're probably refocused, and I think they just kind of come out and light up the scoreboard. And I mean, we'll see if Baker can keep up. Yeah, I'm for the most part with you. I think um, I think the thing to note about the Browns, uh, I, I honestly think the ten point spread in, in Kansas City's favor is too much. Um, reminder that the Browns were absolutely crushed by Pittsburgh in their first matchup, thirty eight to seven. Then they barely beat the Steelers by two, uh, and they were led by Mason Rudolph in that game. The Steelers were. Um, then they came into this game hurting thanks to COVID-related absences, including their head coach and a coach of the year candidate, if not the favorite, Kevin Stefanski. Also, when we're talking about the past defense, they were without Denzel Ward, one of the uh, premier young cornerbacks in the league, uh, who I'm sure would have done better than the replacements did uh, in that game trying to stop the Pittsburgh pass attack. But it didn't matter. I mean, none of those storylines that worked against Cleveland mattered they were just so dominant they're so full of belief right now uh and baker's playing amazing i think this is the kind of moment that epitomizes baker's personality and the attitude that he has carried with him since his college days it has it has drawn the ire of pundits and fans especially opposing fans but this is his thing he's like we don't give a fuck like we're gonna go out there and play our game uh you know he one of the most amazing things that happened last weekend was the story that Baker said where um, Joel Batonio's out, the backup gets hurt, and then a, a former undrafted free agent uh, comes into the game for their last two offensive possessions. And Baker told uh, the commentators interviewing him after the game that he introduced himself to this player in the locker room right prior to the game. That's incredible that they were still able to be this dominant when they were that banged up. They were missing some of the best players on their roster and their head coach. So I got to say, you know, we've seen the Browns put up big numbers. They just put up 47 bomb on the Steelers. We know they're amazing defense. They put up 42 in that amazing game of the year, probably uh, against the Ravens a few weeks back. And, you know, picking Ben off four times is really good. Mahomes and Ben are in completely different uh, stages of their career and different calibers at this point. Um, but I do think the Browns are going to be competitive. I don't think this 10 point spread is, is enough, um, credit to the Browns and how they're playing right now. So, you know, Chase Claypool thinks the Browns are going to get worked. He's been talking a lot of shit and he's been getting a lot of, uh, beef back from that. But I got to say, you know, getting Denzel Ward back, they might get Joel Batonio back. 
uh, getting Kevin Stefanski back, and they're as hot as probably anyone but Buffalo in the league right now. So, uh, you know, this is only a couple of weeks removed from losing to the to the Jets. It's it's really quite a turnaround for them. So, yeah, I think you're right. Tyreek and Kelsey are a problem. They're the most dangerous skill duo in the league. Mahomes is the best player in the league. Um, we'll see. The, the Chiefs are rested, and they're at home, and they're the Chiefs. So, yeah, I like the Chiefs to win. I like the Browns to cover the 10-point spread most likely. I like this game to be much higher than the total. I think it's going to be more more like 65 to 70 points scored rather than the over-under at 57. So to me, Jeff, I'm going Kansas City 38-31. The Browns play their hearts out and come up short. That's a nice total there. Yeah, exactly. Very nice. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the, the one thing that concerns me from the Browns' point of view is how well Baker plays when – they know he has to pass. Like if they get down in a quick hole, similar concept to Baltimore. Like we said, Baltimore is best team in the league when playing from ahead. The Browns, you know, similar mold. Um, but when they get into half to pass situations, if they fall down in, in a quick hole, how well will they be able to move the ball when Kansas City knows that they have to pass it? That's like that's probably my biggest concern. That's a very good point. I'll say this. I think. As good as Kansas City is, they have shown a susceptibility to falling behind early. You know, they did this last year against the Texans, Mm -hmm. 24-0. Oh, yeah. Uh, Obviously, best team in the league came back, eventually won the Super Bowl. But I would not be surprised at all to see the Browns go up 14-0, feel like, oh, my God, we we can actually do this. And then the Chiefs eventually outpaced them, including in the second half. So, um, yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh yeah, and I mean, and they could also shorten the game if they are able to run the ball effectively, go on a couple of long clock milking drives. I mean, I know we typically say that time of possession and long drives are overrated because you just want points, but when you are the underdog and are going up against an explosive offense like the Chiefs, it's in your favor to shorten the game by reducing the total number of possessions and just increase the variance. Exactly. And the Browns absolutely have the uh structure offense to do that you're 100 right increasing the variance only works in the browns favor in that regard because like i said they could get out to an early lead and if they can just stay competitive keep it a one score game who's to say that baker and the browns couldn't pull it out uh i don't think it's likely or probable but i do recognize that they're playing as well as anyone so um, i mean i give them better better chances of pulling it out than antonio cromartie <laughs> or philip rivers uh, um, good stuff. Okay, let's move on to the NFC now, Jeff. We will talk first about the Bucks at the Saints, and we'll start with the Bucks wild card game. They hung on against the Taylor Heineke led Washington football team to win 31 23. Um, and I gotta say, I feel fine with my take riding with the magic of the Washington football team, especially after they entered the fourth quarter, only down two points, and had the emergency quarterback Taylor Heineke banged up during the game. So I, I'm giving myself a, a small pat on the back. I was talking about the spread. I was talking about maybe maybe stepping up to the plate and going the money line there for the Washington football team. It didn't happen. Um, Tom Brady was just you know too good. Um, but I also have to say, Jeff, Taylor Heineke, this guy put up 350 yards, uh, total yards and two touchdowns on the Bucks defense, which has you know been touted all year. Was this an indictment on the Bucks defense that Heineke in emergency duty was able to do so much? Or just some of that magic that I've been talking about for Washington football uh, that we were talking about last week, where they basically just overperformed uh, and exceeded expectations there. 
Um, I think it's both. The I mean, Heineke was very fun to watch, and I mean, I think far exceeded everyone's expect expectations. Absolutely. Um, you know, he had a forty-two percent success rate on dropbacks, which is like really solid. Um, in terms of the Bucks defense, um, I mean, since Vita Vea went down with the injury, like. Um, I mean, they're really like they were sure they're top five defense on the season, but if you're just looking from weeks nine through 17, like it's kind of below average, and that's even, um, including the onslaught of Detroit when they didn't even have like a quarterback, like they're basically a league average defense. So, like, I, I just don't think that the, the defense actually is as good as it's been made out to be and a lot of where we thought it was good came from the first half of the season and being a smothering run defense and yeah it's still like definitely top five against the run but on the back end like they're completely average so yeah yeah like it's you know it doesn't necessarily matter as much when you have Mike Evans Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown on the other side and and a good run game and yes and Gronk, solid run game. Like, like, it doesn't matter that much when you can just light it up, but this isn't an elite defense. Yeah. Um, so, the like you already talked about, the Bucks' offense rolled for the most part against a, a pretty strong Washington defense, so I think they can keep it going. Um, the Saints are built very similar similarly to the Bucks in that they are a pretty balanced football team overall. They're, they don't have a big weak point. Um, I think the Saints are a better overall team, and I think the Bucks are much more talented at the offensive skill position players, even when you factor in Kamara and Michael Thomas, there's just so much depth and star power on the Bucks offense. Plus you have Tom Brady and, you know, Tom and, and Drew are in very similar phases of their career. However, I'll say this, I feel much better about Tom Brady at this point uh, winning in a shootout than Drew Brees. And I just don't know if Drew Brees can push the ball down the field like he might need to in this one. Um, the Saints defense is good. They held... The fraudulent Bears offense, only three points through three quarters. They won 21-9. They did not – I mean, they were dominant and they were good, but they didn't come out and make a statement. They didn't have to, but they they also didn't come out and make a statement that, hey, we're the best team in the league. They just beat a bad – I just don't think the Bears were that good. So Bears have a good defense at the very least, so maybe the 21 points is more an indication on that. But um, they looked like about who, who we thought they were. Uh, they were, they are who we thought they were. Um, and I do think the saints win this one. Um, they've beat the bucks twice. They won 34, 23 early on in the season and more recently 38, three in an embarrassing defeat for Tampa Bay. So I'll ride with the saints. They're favored by three points at home, meaning Vegas basically thinks this is a pick And then you add in the home field advantage, like we've talked about on the show, um, by about three points. I think it should be a really good game. They, they aren't really used. They aren't really uh, using three points anymore. It really? sounds like one. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of gone away, and especially this year without fans. So, and that, yeah, it's a very good point. Maybe this year is an outlier, or maybe uh, it's the start of the trend. So, really, it's they they probably think neutral field Saints are like two points better. Okay. So, I still like the Saints. Uh, I think this is going to be a high scoring affair. I think the Saints are. Going to do a little bit more on the offensive side of the ball, and not because of Drew Brees, but more so due to the creativity of the offense and the skill position players that 
can put the team on their back. Michael Thomas really hasn't been the same player that we saw in 2019, but he did score his first touchdown uh, last week. And obviously there's Alvin Kamara. I, you know, I also think we, we talk about him a good bit, but Taysom Hill uh, is an X factor. So he is something to prepare for. Uh, I think the the Saints win 35-31. And is if so I'll I'll let you weigh in on that, but I also want you to answer if the Saints win and Tampa Bay loses, is this the is this it for Tom Brady? No, he's coming back. What about the inverse? Is this it for Drew Brees? I think it is. Me too. Yeah, I think this is his last season. Um, and yeah, I, I pretty much agree with you on that breakdown. Um, I also, I think Sean Payton is a lot sharper than Bruce Arians. Like, I, I mean, that, I think that actually could be the difference is the guys behind the mic. Yeah, you don't win 38-3 uh, with a 40-year-old quarterback uh, and less skilled offensive skill position players um, unless you've, you've got a big advantage elsewhere. And I think you're right that that's in the coaching. Yeah, like Arians is really like he's never really done anything to show that he's that like he's fine, but he's never done anything to show that he's like a top tier NFL coach or anything. No, I think he's had right, some, yeah. he's had like some good seasons, but like consistently, no. I mean, like anyone can get hot here and there. And I guess when you look at some of the talent that he has had, like, you know, he's kind of underperformed that talent for a decent bit. That's that's a fair point. Um do you think Jameis gets in this game against his former team? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not unless the Saints, you know, are like up again, 35 to three again, and Peyton just wants to rub it in the face, <laughs> which I would be all for, but I would not put money on Winston yeah. entering this game. That's fair. Uh, I think if anything, it would be Taysom Hill who would take over for Drew Brees in the event of an, you know, an injury or something like that. Um Okay, so we talked about that one. Let's move on to the last game of the slate. That is the Rams at the Packers. Packers are fresh, have looked mostly dominant all season, obviously coming off their bye. Aaron Rodgers, you know, playing at an MVP level. It's been talked a lot about in the uh, media circus. Um, But the thing that I want to start with here, Jeff, obviously the Rams have star power. I've been down on them all year. Um, I still am. Um... I think the win against Seattle is more an indication of is was more a loss by Seattle than a win by the Rams. Maybe I'm just seeing things through, you know, uh, biased glasses there. But what I want to start with here is probably the matchup that could decide the game, and that is Devontae Adams or Jalen Ramsey. Who do you pick in that scenario? Um, offense wins. Yeah, I, I like. I, I mean, that's the thing. Like you, you can't stop offense good offense in this league you can only slow it down these days yeah i mean Devonte adams has proved unguardable all year um him and aaron Rodgers have a connection unlike maybe anyone but russell wilson and tyler lockett uh you know they, they are they're probably the best quarterback wide receiver duo or in terms of just mahomes and kelsey maybe yeah you could you could make a case also mahomes, i mean the other thing is it's literally like just adams like they have a they yeah. have an effective run game they have a really good offensive line they have a couple speedy receivers that can contribute but it's really just Adams and yet defenses still don't have an answer so to me I side with Adams in this debate all day even though Jalen Ramsey is you know an amazing player 26 years old shut down DK Metcalf at times this year um DK went off in that and last do we know that he's gonna 
shadow him? No, I don't know that. Or could they like move move Ramsey onto MVS or whomever and double team Adams? Like that's what Belichick does sometimes. Has done with yeah. No, it's it's um it's a fair fair question. Um, to be completely honest with you, I you know. We're not getting into the merits of shadowing, period. But if you don't have Jalen Ramsey contributing to slowing down Devontae Adams, I think you're probably doing something wrong. Because honestly, put put two put two solid players on Devontae Adams, I still pick him to win a you know a one on two matchup, uh, the way that they're playing this year. So yeah, oh yeah, I mean, and, you know, you're a competitor like Ramsey, you're not shying away from that matchup either. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um. Okay, so I, I want to also give you credit, Jeff. You were obviously right to point out Cam Akers last week as he dominated again. Um, you know, I basically said that I'm not all that interested uh, in players uh, on the Rams last week, especially with the quarterback situation, but the case is there for Cam Akers that he would get a lot of work. Basically, I just thought that uh, if there isn't a great quarterback situation for LA, that it would be a little bit too easy to key in on the run. Um, you know, the, the backup, John Walford, ended up getting hurt on a pretty terrible hit. Um, and then Jared Goff came in and looked effective, I guess you could say. But I want to also talk about the cold weather impact on Jared Goff, little hands Goff, as you've pointed out many a time. Uh, so what is your take on how the cold will impact Goff? Because last week we were talking about rivers in the cold and that you basically said, I, you know, I don't think it's going to have that big of an impact. And I would say you were right. It didn't have a big impact yet. He played a great game. So is Jared Goff in a different situation this week? Uh, you, you see this ruler, Will? Yep. All right. Can you uh, see what my hand measures? <sighs> is that looks like about eight and a half, eight? Uh, pretty much nine. nine. Maybe like eight and seven eighths. Okay. Just to be clear for the uh, listeners, he was in fact holding the ruler up to his hand. Don't get any weird ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I'm not that small. <laughs> All right. So what's your point, Jeff? You got about nine my inches. Point is, my point is that is the same hand size that Jared Goff measured at the NFL Combine. Mm, and hands don't usually grow no, once you're <laughs> once you're No, and, and as we've mentioned, I'm a five foot six, you know, Federal Reserve employee. Like I'm not an elite athlete, pro athlete. <laughs> Uh, and Jerry Goff is out there with the same hand size. Uh, I, I mean, like, and we have a very small sample size of Goff to be more serious. Like, uh, I think four games of him playing in games sub 40 degree weather, and he has not been good in that four game sample size. Um, I know one of them explicitly was against the Chicago Bears when they had that league's best defense in 2018, and they just got destroyed. Um, so there is, like I said, there is small sample and selection bias. And also I would presume the other three games are probably happening in the postseason against better teams and better defenses. So you definitely don't want to just over extrapolate because of those four games. There is some decent evidence though, to suggest that quarterbacks with smaller hands, uh, do actually struggle a little bit more in the colder weather. So it is uh, like some other legitimate concern. Now, obviously, in the draft process, you really shouldn't be considering that, I guess, unless you do play in like Buffalo or Chicago or whatever, where you have games year round or, you know, could have a few key games that are, are cold. But 
Um, you know, it's not saying it's a reason to really knock a prospect, but for this matchup and factoring in, he has just got some screws put in his thumb. I really think he could struggle throwing the football, um, probably more so because of the thumb than the cold small combination. So, um, I mean, we're just another heavy dose of cam makers and just a short passing offense. Yeah. And, and I think that in general, you feel better about the Packers roster overall, than the Rams. The Rams, like I said, have star power. Uh, I think the Packers are just a better team. They've played better all year. Um, a, a very positive thing for the Rams case, though, is that Aaron Donald is off the injury report, is expected to play. Um, it was a rib injury that didn't look good. There was concern that he might not be available for this one, which would have seriously, seriously hurt the chances of the Rams to win and slow down this Packers offense. Uh, I think Goff being in the lineup and maybe you know maybe we can call it like 90 percent. you know i don't really know how to gauge the impact of the thumb uh recovery there but golf being in the lineup and aaron donald being in the lineup i think aaron donald is as close as important as a starting nfl quarterback on the other side of the ball as anyone in the league you know he's probably uh if you remove the positional importance of the quarterback aaron donald's probably the best player in the nfl um, and so he and Jalen Ramsey will be doing their absolute best to keep the Packers out of the end zone, uh, you know, as they've been very used to getting into all year. So I still pick the Packers 31 20. Uh, the Packers are six and a half point favorites at home. I think it's going to be less close than that. Um, you know, the Rams have surprised me on many occasions this year. They are almost definitely a better team than I've given them credit for all year. But I still think the Packers take this one at home and Aaron Rodgers is fired up, ready to keep going in the postseason. So uh, what are your thoughts, Jeff, on the game prediction there? Um, I think the Rams are going to need to follow a similar game plan that the Browns are going to try and follow against the Chiefs, shorten the game, um, you know, run the ball uh, and I think they really they're going to have to win early downs on on both sides. Uh, like I'm looking at those those charts I made earlier today, and their early down success rate towards the last four games of the regular season was atrocious. And I mean, we know like they looked really bad, and they lost to the Jets. And yes, the Arizona game there was the QB issue, but then against Seattle, I mean, they got their early down success rate right back, and their total. Um, EPA per play was a little bit below average for themselves, but because they were able to win the early downs, um, you know, they still act, were able to control the game well enough. And on the flip side, they have held every single opponent from week three against the bills through the rest of the season below their season average early down success rate. And I mean, the, I mean, the bills still like lit them up, but um, I mean, that just shows how real like, dominant they are um so i mean there's you know there's a blueprint as we've just gone over but ultimately like unless golf's thumb is really a lot more healed than it was a week ago i have a tough time seeing them being able to score enough to keep up as much as the defense might slow down rogers yeah i agree with you i think that's reflected in my score prediction i think one one last thing i'll mention here is it sounds like cooper cup's gonna play uh he's probably gonna try to at least gut out this knee injury um, Robert Woods is going to play Jair Alexander on the other side of the ball has been, uh, an ascending player the last couple of years since being drafted early, um, in the draft. And 
I think that that is a very underrated situation to watch to see. I don't think he's going to shadow. Um, I'm not sure, you know, who you'd pick in that scenario. Cup is a little bit more prolific of a touchdown score, but Robert Woods is versatile and uh, used, you know, all over, and they're both very dangerous. So I just think it'll be interesting to see if this uh, this Rams team doesn't take your advice and tries to air the ball out and keep up with the Packers. Uh, if Jair Alexander can make a really big impact to shut one or both of these guys down throughout the game. So it will be interesting. Um, okay, Jeff. So we covered it for the divisional round here. Now it is time to talk about the DFS four game main slate. We're talking Saturday and Sunday combined into one slate, uh, which, you know, not, not typical, right? We usually have enough games to just have the slate be one o'clock and four o'clock games on Sunday, obviously when all the teams are playing. Um, but I want to talk about stacks and strategy first and foremost, what is standing out to you in terms of your approach to this slate? Uh, and which stack in particular are you finding, uh, your eyes drawn to? Um, I guess first on these condensed slates, only four games, I mean, I don't think stacking is as important. I guess it's more about trying to predict a game script and, with like almost like tell a story for the games and then like, okay, if that's, if that story is what happens, who's likely to get the points type of deal. Um, you, know, you, you still like you're still building correlation, but you're not just like, all right, Mahomes, Tyreek, run it back with Landry. Like, yeah, I mean, that still works. I mean, you can absolutely do that. Um, but it's not just as generic, like, okay, let's do this stack and that stack. Um, so what sticks out to me at first is Baker Mayfield's all the way down at 5,300. You know, you're safe, you're saving the 2,700 off of Mahomes. And I mean, knowing that, like we said, we're expecting the Chiefs to need to play catch up. So, I mean, that's like really not a bad way to just kind of save your money and then spend up at some of the other positions. Um, I guess the, but let's just say you were trying to like, you know, create that game script story. I mean, Hey, you, I mean, Nick Chubb, even at 6,600 is um, not too badly priced. And none of the running backs are really that grossly priced. Cam Makers is probably going to be highly over um, owned. I don't say over owned, but he'll be highly owned at 5,700 and, you know, projecting like another 25 carries. Um, I think maybe, um, like, you know, the Tampa backfield might be that little low ownership. Um, if you think the Bucks are, might be able to get up early, then roll with Fournette or, I mean, roll with Ronald Jones because he gets a lot more of the groundwork, but Fournette is kind of their satellite pass catching back and could be, get a lot of the PPR that way. Um, I mean, Buffalo, well, like no, um, no Zach Moss for the rest of the regular season. So I wouldn't really play TJ Yeldon because even at, you know, minimum 4,000, but I think Devin Singletary at 4,500 is a little bit more attractive. Um, you know, as like your cost, cost saving RB2 or even your flex there. So that's kind of how I view the running back position. And, I mean, yeah, wide receiver, there's just so many good options. I don't really want to, like, you know, budget that much. Um, 
Jeff, let, let me interject real quick yeah. on the running back situation. I want to go back to Cleveland. Um, last mm-hmm. week, I, I sided in the lineup that I built on the show. Uh, I sided with Kareem Hunt, due not only to you know similar talent level to Nick Chubb, albeit different players, um, but the price difference. And so we saw that Kareem Hunt only had eight carries, um, but he had 48 yards and two touchdowns. He wasn't used heavily as a receiver, unlike at times um, during this year, albeit not a lot of times. But Nick Chubb had four targets, four catches, 69 yards, and a touchdown. He also had 18 carries for 76 yards. So the volume is very clearly siding with Nick Chubb. But we're still seeing Kareem Hunt not only be great in limited opportunities, but get those opportunities uh, typically on the opponent's side of the field and oftentimes in the red zone. So the price difference, uh, Nick Chubb's at 6,600, Kareem Hunt's at 4,800. Is that enough to make you side with the lesser volume uh, player who could be more involved if the game script is like you're talking about where they're trying to shorten the game and really lean on the run game? Um, I don't mind playing Kareem Hunt at all for all the reasons you said, and it's a good pivot, um, you know, especially for a tournament play. Um, if you're doing a cash game lineup, I don't really like Kareem Hunt because you're like really kind of touchdown dependent there. Uh, but yeah, no, for a tournament, I think he's more than an okay play. Cool. Okay. So let's, let's move on to wide receivers here. Who's really catching your eye. Mm-hmm. So many good wide receivers. Um, I mean, I think Gabe Davis is really going to be kind of like another interesting play. Uh, you know, he's still priced all the way down at 4,000. And I mean, you know, we saw what he did. He didn't get a ton of targets, but like said, you need to kind of get someone, you know, you need to find a cheap player here or there. I like Gabe Davis. I think Rashard Higgins for Cleveland is another, you know, 4,100 projected negative pass heavy game script. Um, Also a really good cheap play Um, at the top. I mean, which, which Tampa receiver do you like? Um, Probably Evans at this point. Um, I think, you know, Godwin has been, I would say, a little underwhelming um, at times. I mean, he just he just saw 12 targets, only 79 yards on those targets and a touchdown. Um, but he's got touchdowns in four straight games, five in those four games, uh, eclipsed 133 or had 133 yards against Atlanta. But as I talked about last week, they were facing really easy defenses. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think we've just seen Mike Evans be able to overcome the – the usage um, barrier, I guess, that's been there at times where he's been very focused or his usage has been very keyed in on red zone. But I mean, in his last three games, he's also been dominant. He's eclipsed 100 yards in three out of four, and he's got two touchdowns going back to week 16. Um, so to me, I think Mike Evans is the better play. They're pretty similarly placed, priced. I suppose you could pivot off him if you're worried about the uh, the injury situation. Marshawn Lattimore. Oh, I was going to say the Marshawn Lattimore. I mean, it definitely could but, could be the case for sure. I mean, he's just been like completely shut down by Lattimore in his career. But Marshawn Lattimore has not been the same Marshawn Lattimore that we've seen in the past. You're you've, you're right that Evans has been shut down by him in the in the past. But I don't know. Including 2020. Um. Yeah. I don't. Know. I think I especially considering Evans is the most expensive of the three receivers. Um, I think I like him the least, uh, except partly because of the matchup. New Orleans has just never not been a good matchup for him for 
a few years now. Um, and I'd rather either save three, 300 or a thousand going to down to Antonio Brown. But that's my, yeah. The, the problem with, with Brown, I mean, I, I honestly, I like the play because you're going to get the, the least owned and least expensive player. It's going to allow you to pay up for a guy like Tyreek Hill or Devonte Adams more so than obviously if you were to try to also play Mike Evans or Chris Godwin, but Antonio Brown only saw three targets last week. He saw 15 the week prior against Atlanta in an effort to get him to his uh, contract bonus for, I think it was 44 receptions on the season. Uh, Shout out Tom Brady for helping his boy out. But before that, he saw six targets. Before that, he saw seven targets. He's obviously the least tenured of these three since he joined the team midway through the season. Um, He's shown a propensity to get in the end zone. That's really good. I think that really bodes well for him being that kind of, uh, you know, maybe more volatile, lesser owned, cheaper option play over these others. But I mean, we're talking about a a pretty condensed slate here. So uh, maybe you need that kind of kind of differentiation there. Yeah, I think Godwin's my favorite play out of the three. Hmm. If that's where I was going. Okay. Um, yeah. So for is there anything else? Um, I th- I think there's some think really interesting, very cheap Scotty wide receivers. Miller. Scotty Miller. Scotty Miller. Oh, oh, Josh Reynolds. I mean, with the injury to Cooper Cup, yep. not knowing exactly what they'll need. You already mentioned um, him, but Gabe Davis and Richard Higgins, right around four thousand each. Deontay yep. Harris, Jeff. I mean, we didn't talk about him when we talked about the Saints last week, but oh my goodness! I mean, seven targets, seven catches, eighty-three yards. Uh, he, if you watched the game, he was like very, very good. He uh, he was getting the ball and he was routinely getting yards after contact and after the catch. Um, I don't know that the, if that was a game plan thing. I mean, he saw uh, one target in week 11 and week nine, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, seven targets. Michael Thomas still, again, isn't the same dominant player with the dominant target share that we are used to from 2019. But I mean, there's just a lot of like you could even go back to the well with Isaiah McKenzie, uh, who obviously had three touchdowns two weeks ago. I don't know. I mean, th- there's just like so many. I mean, you can't pick them all, obviously, you know, it's it's not going to work that way. But uh, I think the way I'd probably approach this from a wide receiver standpoint is I want to get one of these studs for sure. Um, um, you know, there's a huge difference between Devontae Adams and Stephon Diggs, and I don't think there's a huge difference in the caliber of player or the volume. So with that said, I'd probably go Diggs unless I really wanted to stack with Rodgers. Um, but you could pay off for one of these wide receivers and easily get uh, a pretty high upside cheaper play miles boykin at 3100 enables you to do so much else um so i'm that's at least something that's standing out to me about this maybe i'm getting a little too cute tell me if i am but i mean there's just a ton of options no i, I don't disagree um and i think tight end is really kind of could be the differentiator because do you want to pay all the way up at 7,800 for Travis Kelsey, who basically, you know, you're paying wide receiver one price, which he has done easily. Mark Andrews, 5,000. And we talked about the matchup against Buffalo. Robert Tanyan has been really good this year. Um, number three on the say at 4,200. Or are you going more like bargain bin? Um, you know, I, I think maybe Austin Hooper is the tight end play of the week. Yep. That's who I was going to pick. I, yeah, because he's thirty eight hundred, so fifth 
fifth most most expensive on the slate in between Jared Cook and Rob Gronkowski. And I think given the uh, projected target share and game script, I think he offers the best upside for the buck. And he's basically like the wide receiver two in that offense right now. Rashard Higgins has been really good in relief of Odell Beckham Jr. when he's been on the field. Jarvis Landry is obviously a workhorse wide receiver for that offense. But, but um, I mean, Austin Hooper is just seeing crazy, crazy volume, like Travis Kelsey in volume uh, as a, as a tight end. And he's got he had eleven targets last week. Obviously, a high scoring affair. Game script worked in his favor. But you reduced the point total by about half, and the and or, or even more. Uh, in the three games prior, he saw five targets, 15 targets, and six targets uh, going backwards. And he also has three touchdowns in his last four games. The yardage isn't anything crazy. The reception totals are pretty good. I think that at his price, I'll say this, I, I'm most inclined to play Mark Andrews for the narrative that I was talking about before that I think he can he has probably the best matchup uh, amongst the the top guys. And he's you know almost 3,000 cheaper than Kelsey. But Hooper, to me, is calling my name just because, you know, if I want to go more expensive, maybe two studs at wide receiver paired with one of the bargain guys that we were already talking about, then go bargain at Austin Hooper, I can pay up at running back, too, or pay up at flex. You know, it's just I think the value's there. And he, you know, one thing to always point out is when people pop in terms of opponent rank on the site that you're playing on. So, for instance, Austin Hooper, uh, he has the 31st. or it's he's playing against the 31st worst defense against uh tight ends in Kansas City so a more casual player um is going to be looking at that and be like oh I want a guy with a good matchup and Josh Hermsmeyer and others in the DFS world have um talked about how defensive matchup is a little overrated and that uh you should fade the green numbers and maybe be a little bit more inclined to go towards the guys with quote unquote bad matchups. But I still think that the case is there for Hooper with the volume, with the touchdown equity, uh, and the the game script we're talking about. Like I like a Baker Hooper stack and then maybe pivot off and get um a Tyreek Hill. Um I mean you could even throw Kelsey in the flex. Screw it. But uh what are your thoughts on that situation? Um yeah, I don't mind. I mean, Kelsey going like two tight end, Kelsey in the flex is going to be a pretty unique configuration, I would imagine. And then you can basically, I would say you could probably just get like as chalky as you want from there. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff there. Um, is there is there a standalone guy in any of these positions we're talking about that you want to get a share of this game? You don't, you know, we already talked that you're not as into stacking because of the way this, this slate is structured with only... 14 uh, four games eight teams yeah but is there a standalone guy that really screams your name that you're like i want to get a share of him maybe demarcus robinson if sammy watkins is out i mean i guess you could say him or nicole hardman but it seems like you know robinson's the backup to sammy and hardman's the backup to tyreek so like i think he's the guy to keep an eye on to be completely honest i think byron pringle is actually would, oh, yeah. would be the guy that he might be he I've seen him you know when I was really hoping for the Nicole Hardman breakout earlier this year when when Sammy was injured uh it didn't come and that was because I think more so Byron Pringle uh is just favored by the coaching staff in that role I think Nicole Hardman is is limited in his role in the offense so to me I, I mean you, you could make this you can make a similar case for Demarcus Robinson who's had an enormous ceiling in this offense so I don't disagree with you but I 
if when we're talking about the context of if Sammy Watkins misses the game, I like Byron Pringle all the way down at 3,200. Yeah, I think both are. I mean, you're still you're spinning the roulette wheel at that point. Yes, the offense goes through Kelsey and Hill, but yeah, it's the same same strategy either way. Um, all right, good stuff. Um, all right, any final thoughts on the DFS argument here, Jeff? Mm-mm. Um, nope. I think we got some hopefully profitable strategies. Yeah, I hope so as well. You know what? You know you know what is a profitable strategy? Hmm. Bitcoin. AFRM. <laughs> AFRM. A firm had their IPO today. Jeff and I were riding the train. <laughs> Yesterday. Um, okay, good stuff, Jeff. I think we had a really good episode here talking about the divisional round, of course. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna cover this round after it occurs and we'll see how right we are. I think there's uh, a lot of interesting games here. I'm not as interested in the Rams Green Bay Packers game as I said at the offset of the show, but other than that, I think they're uh there are three really good matchups here. I'm very excited to see how it shakes out. Um, any final thoughts here as we wrap up episode 71? Circle the wagons. Circle the wagons. Oh, my goodness, man. If if the Bills win this and head to the AFC Championship, I don't even know. Pants off. I don't even know. Well, Pants off. I, um, call a doctor. It's lasting longer than four hours. <laughs> You've got a big uh, a big tweet coming up on Saturday. Am I right? Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. Quite the meme. Yeah. Tune in for that, guys. Jeff, Jeff's been on fire with them, but uh, I got a little preview, my inside access here, and it's, it's good stuff for Bills fans. Just, just the tip. Just the tip. All right. Good stuff. That does it for episode 71. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Obviously, wish you the best of luck in your betting and DFS endeavors. Most of all, just enjoy some really good football before it is gone once again for the season. Jeff, can you believe this, man? There was a time when we were, there was legitimate uh, confidence that we would not have an NFL season. Legitimate confidence we wouldn't have the NFL season. Now we are in the divisional round of the playoffs. For the most part, the season's gone off without a hitch. So uh, I think that that is a, a blessing in a, in a bad year. So anyway. Thank you guys for tuning in. We appreciate y'all. Good luck this weekend. Obviously, go Bills, and we hope to catch you next time.